Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. Today, God speaks to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 38, and from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira the Abdulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enahim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she, she was his daughter-in-law, he went over by, to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. And when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I was uh, a teenager, having grown up in, in the church, um, when, uh, whenever there was this thing that was popular at the time, uh, describing the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. Does anybody else remember this? Um, an extra brownie points if you remember the like legit fire song by uh, Burlap to Cashmere. So good. Uh, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. Uh, but there was this way of describing the Bible. 
that the Bible, the acronym, its basis of constructions before leaving earth. Um, what's funny about that idea is that, you know, since then, since that was popular, there have been a lot of people that have had a lot of opinions about the Bible being talked about in that way. Um, the Bible isn't basic. The Bible isn't an instruction manual. All these kinds of things. Uh, even the, the notion of uh, until we leave earth is actually really bad eschatology because heaven is not some distant land. It's actually a renewed creation. And so there's been a lot of uh, Ill, uh, ink spilled over the years about why this isn't the best way to describe the Bible. But one of the things that I find fascinating about that idea is that on the one hand, this whole notion of the Bible being basic is actually true. Uh, we've said this uh, over and over again, um, that the central message of the Bible uh, is simple enough for even children to understand. It's very basic in that kind of way. But then on the other hand, of course, we also know that the Bible isn't basic. The, the complexities are vast within the Bible. There's a depth in the Bible uh, that is, uh, you cannot compare to anything else. The Bible has a way of encouraging us and lifting us up. Uh, it also has a way of, maybe like today, has a way of making us squirm uh, a little bit, uh, making us feel a little bit outraged even, because there's endless depths that we can spend lifetimes exploring uh, in the Bible. And so yes, in the, in the one hand, the Bible's basic. In another, on the other hand, it's also very deep. But then what are we also supposed to make of that notion of it being instruction? Uh, is the Bible an instruction manual? Well, on the one hand, no. The Bible is not an instruction manual. But on the other hand, the Bible does have particular instructions for us. So I, I start this way because when you approach now stories like what we just heard read, uh, we are confronted with all of that all at once. There's this basicness that's going on in the, in the story. Right? It's pretty clear and understandable what's happening. But there's also this, like, deep complexity that's there. Uh, the Bible here in this story, there's um, certainly some, uh, some ways to understand what we should and shouldn't do. But what in the world could be instructing us from this passage of Scripture? I think if we've got ears to hear, there's actually a lot that we can learn from this story. Because this story actually says far more to us, says far more about us than we probably want to admit. So let's consider that today as we consider uh, uh, moving through our series uh, called The Matriarchs. If you've been with, uh, with us, we've been looking at uh, the line of Jesus. Uh, particularly, we've been looking at the women in the line of Jesus. We started off by looking at Sarah. We then looked at Rebecca. Last week, we looked at Leah. And today, we look at the first woman that's listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, Tamar. And I want us to see how basic and common her story is, uh, what her story teaches us about our own lives, and then ultimately the hope that we can actually find very much in this story. And so let's just consider two things today. Let's first understand and look at the basics of Tamar's story, and then second, we'll look at the instruction in Tamar's story, okay? So the basics and the instruction. First, the basics of her story. To begin, um, we need to understand the full story of Tamar. There's a lot going on around, around her that impacts the trajectory of her life. And so in order to understand what's happening with her, we need to get a bit of a backdrop with what's happening with Judah first. Uh, last week, if you recall, Judah was born to Leah. Leah was the, the unloved um, wife of Jacob. 
she would have uh, eventually become one of the mothers, one of the women in the line of Jesus. Uh, and Judah would be the one who is supposed to carry on now that family line. However, the course of, over the course of his life, Judah hardly grows up into a man that we would think much of. Hardly grows up into one who's worth emulating. Uh, Judah, if you know the story, kind of the, um, throughout Genesis, Judah, he's one of the brothers of Joseph, if you know Joseph. Uh, Joseph would eventually, he's the one who would be sold into enslavement to the Egyptians, and it was actually Judah's idea to sell his brother uh, into enslavement back in chapter 37. Now, granted, Judah, he wanted to do this because others wanted to kill Joseph. So Judah, being, I guess, the compassionate one, decided to sell his brother off into enslavement instead of killing him. Uh, But Judah, what's fascinating about him is that he ends up taking a bit of a a leadership role amongst his brothers, partly because the older sons, uh, those that were his brothers who were older than him, uh, kind of relinquished their rights to the blessing of God by grievously uh, sinning against God. They were murderously violent, which you can read about back in chapter 34. Uh, It's just fair to say that this family, Judah and his brothers, they are all a mess. When Judah seems like the level-headed one um, with selling off his baby brother, you know that this whole family is a disaster. However, things also get far worse. The story we just heard uh, here in chapter 38 highlights Judah and his further descent into depravity. Judah, uh, against the advice of his father Jacob, his grandfather Isaac, and his great-grandfather Abraham, uh, marries a pagan Canaanite woman named Shua. However, beyond uh, just the issue of him marrying a Canaanite woman, there's also a bit of impropriety, not a bit, a lot of impropriety in Judah that we see back in, uh, in verse 2. It says in 38.2, which is just before what we just heard read, uh, it says that he, when he saw his wife, who would become his wife, Shua, that he was full of lust for her, and he just took her and consummated a relationship with her. The whole scene is not this romantic scene of him wooing his future bride. It's domination. Now, subsequently, through this relationship that he would have with Shua, he ends up having three sons, two of which become wicked, wicked men. His oldest son, Er, who took uh, Tamar to be his wife, was so wicked that God just struck him dead. We don't actually know what took place or what happened, but given the context of this family, you have to assume this guy was truly, truly wicked. God strikes him dead. Uh, That said, one of the things that would then happen at the time, as was custom and as was law, because Tamar was now a widow, her husband just died, uh, because she was a widow and without an heir, the closest relative uh, to uh, heir, who in this case would have been his younger brother Onan, was to now marry his brother's widow. And the reason why this law existed was because it um, it was protection. If you know anything about this society, in a family-centric agrarian society, family and children were how one found standing and opportunity. It's how you supported yourself was through through your family. Obviously, today, we don't place uh, such a high value on family and children as the basis of our provision, but we have 
other kinds of benchmarks. Right? There's other things that we have today that if you have them, sets you up for uh, future successes, or more, at least more likely to set you up for future successes, like education, for example. You know, if, you, if someone does not possess an education today, the chances of them being able to support themselves get more complicated. Right? It's easier to find a sense of stability in life if you have an education. It's not impossible without it, but it's certainly far more likely if you do have it. So similarly, in context, a widow who did not have children was almost certainly destined for destitution. And so as a matter of social justice, laws existed that unmarried younger brothers would take care of his sister-in-law in this case. And the father-in-law, who is Judah, was responsible to ensure that this happened. He had responsibilities to Tamar to make sure that she was cared for. And so the, the youngest brother, again, Onan, marries Tamar. But, as we will see, as much like with his older brother, Onan was also a wicked man, and he too dies. And at this point, Judah intervenes by promising Tamar that when his third son is of age, she will then be given to him in marriage. And that until that time, he, uh, she is instructed to go back to her father's home. However, we find out that Judah had no intention of giving Tamar in marriage to his third son, his younger son, uh, and basically just tries to get rid of her. Uh, some have speculated that one of the reasons why he's so indifferent to her in all of this is because he likely blames her for the deaths of his other two sons. That he likely doesn't want to admit that their deaths are the result of their own wickedness and maybe even in some way uh, the result of his own failure as a father, having raised up these wicked sons. And so instead of giving Tamar to his now third son and the possibility of losing that son, he shuns her. And Tamar, knowing this, becomes desperate, and she devises a plan. So we learn that, uh, and this gets us now to our passage, we learn that Judah's wife, that Canaanite woman, uh, has died, uh, and Judah's about to head into town. We know that uh, Tamar has likely spent enough time with Judah to know his character and to know that when he goes into town, there's going to be certain things he's going to engage in. And knowing that, she devises a plan around the knowledge of his terrible character. She knows that he will take what he wants, when he wants it, and in the context of what we heard read, he will have sex with who he wants, when he wants to have it. And so with that knowledge, Tamar goes into town, dresses in a way that would entice Judah, to have sex with her. This ploy to entice Judah works because much like when Judah saw his, his wife, his now deceased wife, he was full of lust and he acted on it. Of course, consequentially, he doesn't realize that the woman before him is his daughter-in-law, Tamar, all of which was part of her plan. And in verses 16 and 17, we see the transaction, so to speak, take place. Judah offers Tamar a goat for payment. In response, Tamar says that she wants something that's going to guarantee that she will actually get the goat. So Judah, incredibly, gives Tamar his signet, cord, and staff. And the reason why this is incredible is because at that time, these were his main 
identification markers. It's basically like him giving Tamar his driver's license and social security card to promise that he would return with a goat. Okay, so that's the context of the story. Fast forward a bit, Tamar becomes pregnant. Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law, who is not married, has become pregnant, and this enrages him. And he wants to kill her. And he doesn't just want to kill her, he wants to kill her in the most barbaric, brutal way, which is to burn her to death. I mean, this is what pagans do. He has completely lost his mind, likely as a way of distracting himself from his own sin and injustice. So Judah, he's furious that Tamar has become pregnant. He wants to kill her. But as she is brought out to be killed, she sends word to Judah. And in verse 25, it says this. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. In other words, in her shrewdness, Tamar puts Judah on blast and says, look, I've got your ID. Now, considering what we know about Judah uh, and considering what Tamar is suggesting, uh, as I think about this, I think about what, what would I expect his reaction to be? Judah's reaction. You know, as I think about it, I would expect Judah to respond defensively. I would imagine him saying something like, where have you gotten these? How have you stolen these uh, from me? However, this is not the response that we see from him. His response is actually very surprising. In verse 26, this is what Judah says. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Selah, and he did not know her again. This is significant. Judah here is he's being confronted with his sin. He doesn't deny it. Instead, he publicly acknowledges the sin that he committed. He publicly acknowledges and admits the sin against Tamar. And in the end, he does not sleep with her again, presumably now taking care of her and the two twins that they have born to them, Perez and Zerah. Now, I started off by saying that this story, Tamar's story, is basic and common. And as I re-narrate that story, I wonder what jumps out at us. How common does that story seem to us? It might not at all seem to have anything to do with us. And granted, this is a story of horrendous injustice and sexual perversion and oppression and evil. And I recognize that maybe for uh, most of us, we don't resonate much with the experiences of what's happening here, although maybe some do. But what I find to be fascinating as we think about this story is that we are actually far more like Judah and maybe even at times Tamar than we want to assume. We just consider Judah for a moment, right? And consider how basic and common his story is. I mean, thinking about Judah after his sons die, I mean, we know what it's like to live in a world that's marked by apathy, toward the plight of the poor, the disenfranchised and forgotten. Right, he's tired of taking care of Tamar. He, he, he just, at this point, wants her out of the picture. He's got a real apathy toward the condition and the situation that she's in. And for many, just like Judah, even today, we would much rather keep the poor and the marginalized out of sight, out of mind, instead of being inconvenienced by the requirements of 
what might be considered social justice. It's easier to just push them away, to not look at it. You know, we live in a world uh, often desiring the kind of freedom uh, from self-control or boundaries around sexual desire in pursuit, a lot like what we see with Judah. Judah was a man who constantly lived off his impulses. When he wanted it, he pursued it, and he took it. You know, what's uh, interesting is that on the one hand, you know, the, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, have rightly highlighted predatory behavior, uh, demanding that people, especially those in power, control themselves. But at the same time, we also live in a world with hookup culture and pornography, perfectly happy to provide sexual pleasure, pleasure free from obligation or commitment, and it will give you what you want, when you want it, no self-control, love and empathy, commitment or care necessary. I think we're probably a lot more like Judah than we want to admit. And what I also find fascinating in that context as well, at, at our best, in that kind of culture, the best measure against abuse, with, particularly with sexual pursuits, the best uh, measure against abuse is consent for us. Of course, consent is without question a non-negotiable, but it's also so insu uh, insufficient to ensure that abuse isn't happening. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating about this story of Judah is if we're outraged by Judah and his actions with Tamar, I do actually wonder why. Because by our own standards of consent, too often, he really didn't do anything wrong. She agreed to this. In fact, this was all her idea. And yet, when we read the story, we know that there's something more that should be taking place here than just pure consent to her, uh, her willingness to engage in sex with him. We're rightly outraged because there's something more that should be taking place. And let's be real, when it comes to the brunt of who takes the most abuse and marginalization, especially in this way, it is often going to be women. And in Tamar's case, women who lack any power or agency. We know that when manipulation and abuse take place, that there's something that must be present more than just consent. And the story of Tamar, though terrible and heart-wrenching, I gotta say, friends, is actually way more common than we want to admit. It's way more basic to the experience of life than we want to admit, even for us today. Now that said, for Tamar and for Judah, it's basically the end of the story for them. As far as they can see, as far as they know, there's not much else to say about their relationship. There, it's been a, a basic story of injustice and oppression and marginali uh, marginalization, all of which is too, is too common of a story. But there's actually far more to say, far more that takes place beyond what they knew could possibly take place. And that actually is what brings us to the second point of what we can learn, the instruction of Tamar's story. Let me show you what I mean. I want to fast forward many, 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 many years to the book of Matthew. Uh, in his opening chapter, Matthew, who wrote his gospel uh, primarily for a Jewish audience, uh, emphasizes the ways in which Jesus is the product or the, uh, in the line of the son of Abraham. 
And he does so by laying out the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to uh, Abraham. Now, in a patriarchal society like what, we, uh, what we're reading about, the most important aspect, typically at the time, of the genealogy would be to trace the line through the fathers. So we would expect to see the fathers, the grandfathers, the great-grandfathers all listed here. But as we see here, and as we're going to see in the coming weeks, Matthew he highlights various women in the genealogy, which would have been remarkably significant, something that would jump out, especially to the original readers. And that means that we're supposed to pay special attention to those he names. Look at Matthew 1 again. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. Let me stop there for a minute. You would think now we would skip from, uh, skip to Perez the father of Hezron. But what does Matthew do? He adds Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Now that you know the story, Right, now that we've got the story front of mind, why does Matthew remind us of one of the most difficult and problematic stories of the entire Old Testament narrative of Abraham's line? Right, what, are we, what are we supposed to, to learn? What are we supposed to see? What is instructive for us by Matthew naming Tamar in this genealogy? I mean, if he wanted to just tell us uh, how Jesus was connected to Abraham, Tamar was absolutely not needed in this story, or I'm sorry, in this genealogy. But by including her in the story, Matthew is instructing us on two key points that if we were to rush past, we'd miss. But those two key points are simply this, and these are the two things I want us to walk away with from this story, is first, the importance of repentance, and second, to see God's commitment to the lowly. All right, so the first thing, the importance of repentance. Something significant about the way the story plays out uh, for Judah is that Judah was very much on the same path that his brothers and his sons had been on. Again, if you remember, Judah was, by all accounts, a level-headed one <laughs> amongst his murderous brothers. His brothers were wicked and disqualified themselves from being part of Abraham's line. Judah's sons, likely as a result of his fa uh, failures as a father, are so wicked that God strikes them dead. And here in the story, Judah is about to commit a heinously wicked and violent act against Tamar. Right? He wants to burn her to death, act as a pagan. It would have been horrendous. It's the kind of act that very well would have caused him to also be struck down by a holy and just and righteous God. His name might never have been tied to the great throne of David or the eventual uh, redeemer who was to come. But what was different for Judah than for his brothers? Well, I actually think it's verse 26. Again, verse 26 says that when Judah identified, uh, when she, uh, Tamar confronts him, Judah says, she was, far, far, she was more righteous than I since I did not give my son Selah and he did not know her again. This is significant. Judah, again, is confronted by his sin. He doesn't in, uh, deny it. Instead, he publicly acknowledges the sin that he has committed. He admits to his sin against Tamar. And in 38, 
at the end of this very, very long story of depravity, we see Judah confess and even repent, acknowledging that justice was on her side, not his. And if you know the broad story of what's happening in Genesis, uh, you know that there's a, a significant change that happens in him from this moment on that we see later uh, in the narrative, later chapters. The story of Judah and Tamar is seemingly randomly plopped in the narrative of Joseph, that younger brother. Again, this is a brother who was sold into enslavement. But it is not random at all. Rather, the story gives us the backdrop of what Judah becomes. Because in later chapters, what we see is that Judah, the one who has only ever cared about himself, only serves himself, later in the story, willingly, offers himself into enslavement to rescue his younger brother, Benjamin, if you remember that story. It's an amazing a turn of, of events. Judah, the despicable man, at the end of Genesis, offers to lay down his life for the sake of another. And what has led him to being willing to lay down his life when all we've ever known him to be is one of self-gratification and coldness. Well, I think it's actually the story of Tamar. It gives us a huge insight into understanding his transformation. Even though Judah would never really know the full extent of his repentance, it impacted many generations. His sin against, but his repentance before Tamar is given to us to show where redemption and restoration can come from. And it comes through repentance. And so one takeaway, one significant takeaway from this story is that repentance matters in acknowledging wrongdoing and a willingness to repair what has been broken as a result of our sin matters. And so maybe like Judah, you will never know the full extent of what can occur as a result of repentance. But I think Judah remains in this line of Jesus because of this repentance that we see in the story of Tamar. And generations would be impacted by it. But that said, what about Tamar? Because again, she's the one that we're focusing on today. Specifically, Matthew could have mentioned Judah as a way of calling to mind repentance, but he also wants our attention drawn to Tamar. Why? Because like the other women in the genealogy of Jesus, the women we will consider in the coming days, Tamar very much represents what has been called the upside-down kingdom of the kingdom of God. Tamar is not a woman of means or power, of agency or status. She is a broken woman, abused by those in power, rejected by those who ought to love her, unprotected as a result of the failures of those who should have protected her. And it is her that God uses to bring forth the Redeemer and the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ comes from the womb of a woman forced into selling her body for survival. And this actually, my friends, is the hope of the gospel, that God sees the lowly, that justice is on the side of those who have been oppressed, that God will bring redemption even through horrible, broken circumstances. You know, I made reference to the upside-down kingdom, the kingdom of God. And there's so much that could be said about that idea of the upside-down kingdom. But in sum, that the upside-down kingdom is God's kingdom 
which represents something completely different than what we are used to seeing in the kingdoms of this world. You know, the kingdom of God is where the first are last and the last are first. The kingdom of God, it's, it's a kingdom that rejects the idea of gaining the whole world if it means losing your soul. It's a kingdom where if you want to save your life, Jesus says we must lose our lives. It's a kingdom where the poor in spirit inherit the earth. The meek inherit the earth. The persecuted possess the kingdom. It's a kingdom not for those who seek power or status or dominion or are oppressive. This is how the world works. And every nation of the world will pursue power and status and dominion and oppression in order to meet its ends. This is the default setting, and it is basic to all of us. But the upside-down upside down nature of God's kingdom rejects all of those basic instincts that we may possess. See, the kingdom is ruled by a king, a particular kind of king, a king who lays down power, doesn't pursue it, but lays it down, taking on the oppression and the suffering and the violence of this world. A king who does not seek his own benefits, but gives his life for his enemies. A king who was not to be found in palaces or centers of power, but rather was with the widows and the hungry, the sick and the oppressed. A king that came to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. It's a king who would have looked upon Tamar with compassion, not disgust. Tamar, the one that the world would probably think very little of, God says that in his kingdom she shall be exalted, and it's through her that the Redeemer of the world was to come. That would be a Redeemer who in his justice had every right to turn his anger upon the Judas of the world, wiping them out of, um, into obscurity, never hearing about them again. But because of this king's great mercy, he committed to taking upon himself the consequences of injustice committed by every Judah, including us, who all, when they repent, they turn away from they, their, their sin and are able to repair that sin by the power of his spirit. He extends that grace and mercy, my friends. Jesus Christ, the heir of Tamar, sees the broken and the downcast and calls them to himself. Jesus, the heir of Judah, pays for our injustices and brings restoration by his mercy. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the instruction we discover in the midst of this terrible story is that God is very much at work restoring and redeeming that which is broken. And so for us today, may we be both like Tamar and Judah. Come in a posture of repentance. Come with a, a loneliness knowing that nothing in this world is going to possibly give us what God alone can give us which is grace and mercy and restoration. Let that be the hope that we get from this story. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of great grace, a God of great mercy. We thank you, Lord, that uh, too often we are 
more like Judah than we want to admit. But thank you that as we come by faith and in repentance, you're a God who redeems and restores. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who sees the Tamars of this world, who sees those that are suffering under the burdens of oppression, marginalization, evil. And that you come with great power, liberating power. We thank you for the reminder that you are a God who does not privilege the powerful, but that you lift the head of the lowly. Lord, would you, as we think about your great grace, would you, by the power of your spirit, make us people who do the same? May we be a people who see those who are lowly. May we be people who don't want to push people out of sight, out of mind, but engage well in this world, that we might represent your upside-down kingdom, that people may come to know and experience your great love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.